Money, money, money. Research has shown that many of us would prefer to talk to our partners about sex than we would to talk to them about money or financial worries. So today we're going to go there. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and maybe boldly amongst the budgets. In her late 30s, Jessica Irvine was a classic example of someone who knew a lot about money management in theory, but wasn't so great in applying it in practice. Jess is one of Australia's leading economics journalists. She has sat and interviewed federal treasurers. She has sat through federal budgets for many years. She is currently a senior economics writer at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. At the start of 2021, she launched a weekly email newsletter called Money With Jess, all about money, how to get it, spend it and save it. We dive into some really practical ways that you can get clear on what money means to you and some really practical hacks on how you can curve and understand and organise your spending in a way that leaves you feeling in control. So have your highlighters at the ready as we talk about Money with Jess Irvine. Jess, it's such a delight to be connecting with you. Thank you so much for for taking the time to sit down and have this chat about money. Oh, it's fantastic to talk to you, Ali. I've been thinking I'm going to get like a free counselling or psychology (laughs) session in here. I won't have to pay my you know, $100 or whatever and claim it back on Medicare. (laughs) Don't worry, because I'm also going to get get you to do my budget. So it'll go go both ways. Happy to, happy to. It's it's like the the old bartering days that we can make it it work. Jess, you obviously, and I really want to dive into, and I'm excited about this conversation around money. When we talk about living a standout life of our financial health, our um, relationship with our financial finances and money is a big part of it. Before we dive into that though, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your story. So background in journalism uh, with a key focus on economics from I understand. Tell me a little bit about your story, um, how you got into journalism, uh, what was it that kind of attracted or pulled you into, into that field? Yeah, I did study economics and philosophy at university. And then I sort of heard through one of my lecturers that the economics editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age was was looking for sort of cadets, people who sort of understood economic concepts, but, you know, were good at communicating them and writing articles for the newspaper. So in about 2005, I joined as a cadet baby journalist. (laughs) Um, And so I added it all up. That means I've just covered my 18th federal budget, uh, you know, which all the fun things of going down to Canberra for budget lockups. And, you know, I've been reporting on inflation and interest rates and unemployment data for, you know, almost two decades now. And I love it. Um, And and I've always loved sort of making that information um, relatable and accessible to people and explaining it. But there was sort of a bit of a, a blind spot in my own life in terms of, you know, whether I could run my own household budget and whether I was applying that stuff that I knew in theory to actually enhancing my own life. Uh, so um, that was a more recent journey. I, I'm about, I am 40 now um, and I got divorced in my mid thirties um, and I have a son. And so it just sort of striking out on my own 
anyone who's been through that process knows it's a bit of an inflection point. Um, so post that sort of scenario, spending a lot of time trying to look at my own personal financial setup and take control of that for maybe the first time. I'd previously been quite disengaged. Um, so that, and then I started writing about that sort of stuff in the paper as well more recently, you know, a, a personal finance column, which um, did really well and connected, I think, with people. And that's sort of the basis for the book that I've written, sort of pulling together some of that wisdom that I've accumulated for myself through some hard fought, <laughs> not necessarily always doing it perfect myself. I love that um, kind of dichotomy between that federal budgets and inflation and, and uh, money from a country versus like our own kind of, you know, our own universe, our own kind of space. Let me go back a little bit though, economics and philosophy. What was it that pulled you into to studying in that area? Yeah, well, I actually, I looked at degrees in the UK and there's a quite popular degree over there called PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, sort of combining the grand traditions. And um, yeah, I like to be, I've always been interested in numbers and economics, but the philosophy piece is probably even the more interesting part for me, you know, how to make good decisions. And they intersect, you know, economics Mm. is about the allocation of scarce resources to maximise utility which is sort of another way of trying to figure out how to be happy, which is sort of what philosophy is. (laughs) Um, So I've always come at economics from a, you know, oh, how can that actually enhance my own personal decision-making to lead a good life? Um, And so I think I, I mean, I haven't done anything with my philosophical training apart from maybe that's informed some of my writing and the things I choose to write about. But I, I, I love all those questions and the Stoics, you know, and just, it, yeah. <laughs> totally. Those those big, deep questions around, as you say, what does it mean to be happy? Um, what does that What does that mean when we're part of a community, not just individuals as well? So we're looking at it from a societal, political perspective um, is, is deeply kind of interesting. Did you find you grew up kind of sitting or immersing in those questions for, for you to have that interest in philosophy? Um, I guess so. I guess I'm a person who is just deeply riven with this sort of um, existential angst that we're all going to die one day. (laughs) Maybe I'm just more conscious of that than other people. And I've discussed that with my therapist as to (laughs) what level of focus on that is appropriate. But I've always had a bit of a sense of, oh, gosh, we're not here for a long time. What's it all about? Um, Mm. And maybe that's actually the, the function of a more anxiously prone mind so it's keeping in balance for myself what is you know purposeful and useful question asking of those questions and what might be useless rumination and you know being in the moment I I just have always had that internal dialogue with myself I um, I mean, you're talking to a fellow daydreamer here who I remember my mum telling me that, you know, you just need space to daydream from time to time and and some of that absolutely can sit in that kind of anxiety and what if and what am I doing and where's it all going, what's it all mean? <laughs> and other times it is this really kind of just sense of space and, 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 um, and place. So I, you know, completely sit with you on that, that, you know, yeah, they, I think they're two sides of the same coin, that kind of anxiety but also curiosity about life that can come at different times. But I love that intersection between philosophy and economics and then 
obviously your your pathway of journalism. When you talk about 18 federal budgets, there is a part of me that goes, did you have a favourite one? Like is there one that, you, that stands out uh, for you? Yeah, there was one that pretty much didn't pass Parliament back in 2014. I think it was Treasurer Joe Hockey, but um, Abbott, Tony Abbott had just been elected and they did this budget where they just tried to increase taxes and cut spending a whole as bolus and it was just sort of, it was quite bold. I mean, and there was budgets during the, the GFC when we were throwing money to try and save the economy and more recently the pandemic. Like, mm. I think... Yeah, I do get very excited about federal budgets because they are society's response channeled through government to the challenges of the time and they really are ethical statements about where who are we going to help, where's the money going to go um, and that decision-making through government and being, oh, I'm getting fairly grandiose here, but the expression of our democracy and our values through where our money goes. I've always thought that money talks and and I've always seen budgets at the federal level in that way and sort of applying that lens to it, which I think is deeply fascinating. It's not just about the numbers. No, it is. It's, it is that kind of ethical standpoint, these key decisions, and in some ways you know, uh, what comes to mind for me, it is that what's that psychological safety or who in our society do we want to kind of craft and create that around, that there is a pathway or support or that um, we we understand the hardships and, and we will support that along the way as well, which then also, I guess, feeds into that psychological safety at, at a um, a quite a personal level. If I go back and I want to dive into money, um, do you have a sense of maybe the stories, the narratives about money that you grew up with or lack of? Uh, maybe like what did what did that mean to you? Yeah, look, I was always comfortably well off. Um, since graduating uni, I've always been on a relatively a high salary. So I've never sort of had that struggle with debt that some people get into trouble with. I've never sort of struggled in that sense. And that almost breeds a sort of um, overconfidence or just a, a malaise where you're, you don't, you don't have to really watch the money too closely. Um, so you don't, <laughs> and it comes in and you spend it. Um, so, I mean, and I've wondered if it's, it's, it's different for women of my generation, you know, like I, my mum did work as well and earn her income, but I, you know, have always worked. I continue to work after having my son and sort of being a woman managing my finances and making those decisions, That that's only a, a relatively few generations old story. So, yeah, in terms of seeing role models of, you know, women with laser-like focus on their budgets and, you know, becoming investors, that's sort of some of those concepts are a little bit more foreign, I think, for women and we're still levelling that playing field. So I, think, I guess there's a mishmash of everything that comes in to sort of inform what, how we think we should be acting towards money and what's, what's the place for women in particular in, in terms of investing and saving and leveraging and building assets and that kind of story is a new one for my generation, I think. 
Yeah, I tend to agree. And I think that sense of there being role models or examples of a these conversations, but then also, you know, what kind of investments have worked, what haven't, what what did I learn along the way, where did I get that information or that data from? It's all very very new. If I take you back to, I think you mentioned divorce, kind of mid thirties, with a couple of kids, now forty, with a really strong kind of focus on budgeting. And, and you touch on, I guess, almost this distinction and maybe you could talk to it about not just about knowing money but more about having a sense of control or understanding of financial control is really what we're talking about as opposed to when we talk about money, most people go, I just need more of it <laughs> as opposed to how do I be really conscious about the level that I have. It's not necessarily about the volume but the awareness and the consciousness of it. So what was your realisation, whether it was after the divorce or in the last kind of couple of years around this is something I need to learn more of, uh, invest more time for myself in? Yeah, I mean, there's a really amazing segue back to what we were talking about with government budgets. Um, for me, doing the budgeting, tracking my spending, that's a microcosm of me deciding what my values are and through the money that I spend, what kind of life am I deciding to live? It's so easy to spend money, so easy. <laughs> but do you value Uber Eats? Do you value new shoes? Does that really bring you happiness and joy? Um, so there's the aspect of, you know, just needing to make ends meet and making sure that you're saving and being responsible with your money. But then there's sort of a broader, deeper conversation with myself constantly about, am I living the life I want? Am I spending my money in line with my values? Like I tried to cut my gym membership recently. Um, and I, this is a, something I do sort of an elimination diet type um, experiment with some of my spending. I've cut out alcohol. I've cut out I haven't had my hair cut professionally for about two or three years. Um, I didn't buy new clothes for a year. Um, not because I want to live a destitute life, but I just want to see, do I really value those things? Um, and, and sometimes I don't with the haircuts. And sometimes I do, like with the gym membership, I restarted that because I could really see the, the benefits to me of having a regular um, exercise regime. And I really noticed it when I wasn't um, getting that. So with things like the gym experiment, I mean, and being now a single mum in my 40s now, um, it's it's been a great process of just deciding who I am and what I value. So the budgeting is something a lot deeper to me than just numbers on a page. I really... I mean, I think that starting point of actually stopping and thinking about where are we spending our money and is that in line with what I value, what's important. So it's not right or wrong, getting haircuts, going to the gym, if that's your decision, but being much more conscious rather than unconsciously spending that, conscious about is that something that's important to me. Um, you touched before on the elimination kind of diet when it comes to spending. Is that Was that a starting point for you? How did you kind of venture down that and how do you tap back into that? Well, I've sort of tried to eliminate now everything that you possibly can. I do run a fairly bare bones budget um, because I just sort of my values have shifted more towards I love free time, I love reading books, I love going for walks to, to cheaper things 
I just enjoy things that don't cost money. <laughs> um, that actually creates less stress for me in my life. So I, I have a bit of a, a thing of doing experiments. And I, and I think that's a fun attitude to have to it rather than I have to give this up. I'm not allowed to spend this money. I shouldn't have shoes. Um, in the book, I write a lot about, you know, these sort of negative money thoughts that people seem to have embedded in them. Like, I'm not supposed to spend money. I'm spending too much. I'll never have enough money to retire. Um, you know, there's a perfect way to be doing my money and I'm just not doing it. And you mm. would know with your background, um, if you're thinking thoughts like that about money, you're creating, you know, anxiety and fear and shame around yep. what you're doing with your money. And if you're trapped in that, it's very hard to start making better decisions. So, you know, I go into some of just basic cognitive behavioral therapy of identifying your thoughts. Well, your emotions, you know, how, oh, I just feel really stressed when I think about money. I'm, I don't even want to look at it. I'm that scared mm. of it. Um, and then trying to unearth, well, what's, and I provide some examples of, you know, what are the, some of those thoughts you might be thinking about money? And here are some replacement thoughts, you know, that, you know, actually yeah, I can make progress, baby steps, just live within, you know, spend less than I earn as a starting point. Um, and also that the whole point of life is to spend money. That's in economics as well. Like you're not just supposed to purchase food shelter. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're allowed to buy shoes and, you, and you're allowed to buy things that you like. In fact, that is the whole point of life <laughs> mm. is to figure out the things you like and to, to, you know, exchange your labor for money so that you can have the things that you want. But what really distresses me is seeing people sort of caught in a, a spiral of, of just making mindless choices. And particularly if those choices are putting them in financial stress and debt. Um, I've really wanted to just create a conversation where it's about slowing down, observing your spending habits, baby steps of just like tracking your spending for a while. And, you know, within the book, trying to set up the conversation around, hey, are you thinking these really horrible thoughts about yourself and your relationship with money? Um, just identify that and try and have some new thoughts about it. Obviously, again, you're speaking my language when you're talking emotions and money from a psychological perspective. It's incredibly powerful. I remember reading um, a couple of years ago that you know financial stress is one of the the core factors for relationship stress. It absolutely the the two go in hand in hand. We have just come through two years of COVID, which for a lot of people um, brought that financial stress to the forefront in a whole range of different ways. Um, obviously, we're looking down the barrel here in Australia of an election time, budget time, potentially rates going up, those sorts of things. So it's it's constant in front of mind and in relationships. It's a it's a core thing and what sits behind that is willingness to to talk about it, willingness to have the language to describe it. Um, I remember this article <laughs> said that, you know, couples feel more willing to talk about their problems with sex than they are with their problems with money and finances. So I think that... <laughs> and they're probably not that comfortable talking about sex either. <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, when it comes to money or finances, that... And I think shame is a big part of it. Um, and, pro and unfortunately, what can happen when we feel like that, then we'll go into retail therapy or all the market tells us you'll feel better if you buy this product and so then it becomes a bit of a spiral with so I love that kind of invitation to emotions I guess whether it's through people that you've spoken to 
having this book come out or through your own, what are some of the common emotional responses to to money or starting to look at finances? What have been some of the common ones that you've come across? Yeah, look, I mean, because I've been writing about it for so long and I deal with editors, readers, comments and all that, I do get to see a lot of, you know, how people are thinking about money. And in the book I, I have something that you would recognise, which is the, the the feelings wheel, which can be a tool for therapy, you know, to say if you don't know what your feelings are, here's a list of really common ones. And if I if I look at that, I sort of think people when they – and I say in the book, think of the word money. When you hear the word money, mm. what what do you think? And for me, like I feel quite joyful and at peace and calm because I <laughs> – but that is completely foreign to a lot of people. It's more, you know, sh- shame, anxiety, worry, um, powerlessness, um, hesitant, you know, even apathy because it's too overwhelming. Um, and it's funny, I think f- if I had to pick one, it's probably fear. I think people are scared of money um, and I think – that, you know, what do you do when you're scared? You run um, and you'd know, you know, actually if you're trying to conquer a fear, a little bit of exposure to the thing that you're scared of in small doses can actually be a more powerful way to move you forward rather than just the blocking it out and running away from it. So I almost think of my little budgeting system where I have coloured highlighters and I track my spending and I categorise it. It's sort of like a mini version of... um, exposure therapy like you know if you're scared of spiders you look at a little fluffy creature you know cartoon drawing of a spider and then you work your way up I I, I've just got you like a a colorful binder and you print out some printouts and you you know write down two coffees and you highlight it in yellow and um, I'm hoping and I'll, I'll be so interested to see how the book is received and whether this is you know just something that works for me but I I do get some feedback from my Instagram account money with Jess and that the people are wanting to sort of have an entry point that's just mm. super non-confrontational and not scary because people are already so scared of money. With um, I think one of the things that might happen or can come to mind is particularly when you talk budgets, um, if I talk from a personal point of view, it's probably not my strength to kind of look at a budget. I'm a rebel on the inside. You give me a plan. I'm like, yeah, but I can hack the system and I can work my way around this. And for some people listening, it might be, well, I've tried budgeting before and it didn't work or it worked for a little while, but then this bill came out of nowhere or this you know thing happened or this global pandemic happened and it all went out the window. Um, so sometimes the coming back into it can trusting yourself or that, you know, rather than, well, I've tried it, it's not going to work for me, this isn't my thing. What might be your advice if someone were was at that point? Um, and I love that, you know, kind of gentle entry. Here's some really practical, tactile things to do. And I'm we're gonna I'm gonna ask you some questions about some other practical things in a moment. But just as that starting point, if someone's going, look, I tried that 10 years ago, it didn't work for me, what would be your suggestion? I would think that they're probably in the majority. Like it, it is really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to do a budget. And because You know, some people sit down with the best intentions and they go, okay, here's my food, my electricity bill, my phone bill, um, maybe a haircut. Um, But there are a lot of expenses that come up in life. And I think my strength drawing on my sort of economics journalism is that I do spend a lot of time digging around in statistics. And I dug out this survey of 
household spending, which has about 700 different things that could drain your budget from your water bill to your rates to, you know, you needing to get pest control in or something. <laughs> and, and so within the book, I've, I've gone through just a, such a super comprehensive checklist that I, I hope it would help people avoid not thinking of some of the expenses. And I have to watch the tendency in myself, I want to control everything. And there's probably, there's probably something that will come up that I haven't thought of, but I haven't thought of it yet. <laughs> and people keep <laughs> testing me. They're like, well, what about like paper clips? And I'm like, yep, that goes under stationery, which goes under education. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I hope that people reading through, and that takes up like the middle section of the book, going through all the things you need to think about. I hope that that's not overwhelming. I hope it's sort of liberating to go, oh, Jess, thought about like even dating apps you know where do they go and you know (laughs) and so that when you start out that you're sort of aware of you know things that might come up Um, and I think another thing that's different about how I approach budgeting to and I, I do liken it to sort of diets people sort of like I tried a diet it didn't work you know it's sometimes there's a restriction mentality around budgeting, Mm. that it's not just I'm going to be aware of my money, it's and I want to spend a lot less. So it all starts in a massive flurry and on day one you're tracking your spending and you're never going to leave the house (laughs) Uh, because you want to do it all at once. Um, And I'm very careful about making um, analogies between diets and budgeting, money and and body, because I'm aware that body issues are are just so complex in our relationship with food. Um, But there is sort of a central role at play of you know energy in energy out money in money out like um and so many variations in that ecosystem as to why Mm. people are eating more moving less again why people are spending more you know or or earning less so without sort of oversimplifying it i just sort of say there is a there is a core there with your money that you need to spend less um, than you're earning and you need to be aware of it without suddenly wanting to go for gold and like save a million dollars <laughs> in a year. <laughs> um, yeah. So I see some similarities there. Yeah, well, one of the ones that came to mind, I had a question sitting here around deprivation. So often that yep. can be with budgeting is the sense of, well, I have to deprive myself of or and I have to live on noodles and <laughs> oh, yeah. brown rice and, and that's the the best way or the only way and that's where I I mean I love that entry around values what are those things that are important to you and making decisions yeah. through that rather than even what what you're doing or what you know yeah. the next door neighbor's doing um to to get around that has that been part of the the conversations you've had as well it's somehow marrying the two about you know having an awareness of the numbers but not making it all about the numbers or like you know having an awareness of calorific content of foods but not making it all about that and not sort of using that equation to dire ends by just trying to crash diet or crash budget but so you know and I know it's a delicate conversation to try and sort of I mean in the food area like it's much more around trying to eat nourishing foods that will give you the micro and macro nutrients that you want move your body in ways that you are comfortable with and that you can stick with because that's what makes it a long-term thing if you want to flip that into budgeting you know spend your money on things that bring you joy do work yeah. that you're happy and you think you can pace yourself at for for a whole career so that you have income going in you know it's a there's, there's similarities on there, but um, 
Yeah, I, I think the better approach, you know, whilst the book is heavily focused on do your numbers, you got to do both. You got to do both. Mm. There's got to be a purpose and a reason, which is what what helps you to stick with it and to celebrate the joys along the way. You touched on investing before and and one of the really practical things that you've got in the book is 10 hacks, uh, 10 top hacks to buying your first home for some people listening. They're like, I'm never going to buy a home in this current environment. Things are going to not be possible or, you know, I have bought it but now I'm looking at a mortgage that I'm not sure my life will (laughs) will match, you know, the, the level of life that I have left to be able to pay it off. Can you share with us a couple of the hacks that you've got? Yeah, and that's such a stress for young people because I think um, to get on the property ladder, people are having to get in there um, with bigger loan sizes, um, but maybe before they've been able to save that comfortable buffer of 20%. I think it's quite common now for people to be buying where they're really quite stretched at their lending capacity. Um, So, I mean, the flip side of that, that is sort of the for young people to know that if you're sitting around waiting for 20% deposit, you may never get there. Uh, Sorry. Well, it will take, I think on the average now is it will take you 11.4 years to save up enough for a 20% deposit on a median um, value house. So it could be a lot more in, in some areas. So it's a delicate conversation to have with younger people around, well, you probably would benefit from being aware of your cash flows because the bank's going to um, look at how much you're spending relative to how much you earn to decide what spare capacity there is for you to service a mortgage. So, I mean, and that's what I hope the people who are going through that process and they're going to apply to a lender to to get finance, the, the bank actually asks you all these questions about, mm. well, how much do you spend on food and transport? And you sit there and go, I've got no idea. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and often they will default to sort of assuming an average for you, which is quite modest. So you might find that, mm. you know, if you're not across the numbers, you're going to be quite pinched when you do get into home ownership. I mean, but just generally, you know, people, you know, there are, you can do parental guarantees to help you get in. There's government schemes to um, help you save on some costs if you only have like, say, a 5% deposit. So, you know, there is... Um, there is support and almost encouragement for you to get in there with a, a lower deposit than prior. But, you know, gosh, it can be tight when you do get in there. And I think that is a new source of money stress for, for younger Australians having to really max out max out their budgets to just be able to afford a house. And how stressful is that? It is stressful. And the invitation I think you've got is... Um, to still know it and have a sense of agency or awareness or ownership, whether it's a conversation with a bank, whether it's a conversation with, you know, as you say, parental guarantee, which is a family conversation around what is it I'm trying to achieve, how might we find a way and what does that actually look like? And that starts with knowing what's important to you and what what your numbers are, um, which is those foundations. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of key questions that you do address in the book as well. Um, Some of those are key questions that people want a really direct answer on and some of them you might have or might not have. Should I invest in property or shares? 
being one of those. What, what did you find from your research and, and putting the book together? I love it because I'm such a journalist. So I know the questions in people's mind are like, no, just tell me property or mm. shares and tell me what the guaranteed returns will be for the next 50 years that I hold them. <laughs> just tell me That's the right. future. And then I can just say, Jess said. <laughs> Jess said, and then I will sue her <laughs> for poor advice. <laughs> um, so yes, I've, I've posed the questions in the book about should I rent or buy? Should I um, invest in shares of property? And usually the, que- the answer is it depends. It depends on your personal preferences and and priorities uh, I usually do nudge towards an answer like on rent or buy that there are long-term tax benefits from property ownership in Australia and there are benefits to owning your home when you have retired and all the capital gains that you get are tax-free so I sort of but I also say if that's not possible you can rent and you know invest in other assets as long as you have leverage meaning that you get access to the the returns on those assets earlier in your life um, which could be like borrowing to invest in shares Um, and I think you asked about property versus shares you know I've got like a long-term graph that goes back 100 years that tells you actually over the long term there's value in both of those propositions you know shares return you dividends and also a little share of any productivity gains that happen in in companies so there's reasons to believe that shares go up in value and there's reasons to believe that property goes up in value because we just tend to have a a shortage of it relative to demand which can change you know the government could change that we could build a lot more houses and we could reduce tax breaks on housing um, but they don't seem to so you know property does tend to appreciate overvalue in in so I sort of ask people and one of the little mental devices which I think is just a common psychological device is when you're asking those questions today should I do this should I do that you're assuming there's a perfect answer um, and you can flip it around to could I do could I do this or could I do that and the answer is you could do both what do you want to do um, and you, and when it comes to money you do need to do a little bit of research as well because sometimes there's a, a better answer for you um, and you know seeking professional advice where that is appropriate um, but people yeah bring this sort of oh my gosh, there's an urgency and there's a sense that everybody else knows the answer or even that there is a clear, knowable answer. Um, You know, I'd be very rich. (laughs) Well, whoever knew that would be very rich. Um, And there are very rich people in the world. But, um, you know, it's it's called personal finance for a reason and it's usually personal. But, you know, there's some good rules of thumb and I've, I've sort of provided a framework for thinking through such questions. Um, I think that that level of kind of edu- educational exploration, I love the even longitudinal um, concept that, that you've touched on as well. I know when my husband and I started looking at kind of shares, we actually, we literally printed off a graph of I think the last 50 years um, and just the S&P and where it's gone and we laminated and put it up as that reminder because you see the spikes but the if you had it as an arrow it goes up. But of course, all we ever see is the market falls and everyone loses money, GFC. But then you can see where that sits in a 50-year kind of time frame. So I think that level of perspective helps then to understand the longer-term versus short-term investment. What am I trying to do? Which comes back to values, which comes back to the things that are really important to me. You've got a bunch of different really practical hacks. Um, what's in the book is that invitation to start to start to pull it together. Do you have a favourite 
hack, whether it's around some of them you've got here are hacks for saving on petrol, how to trim your food bills, how to save on electricity, saving on your mortgage. Is there one that's kind of been a favourite to you or one that people kind of ask you the most about? Um, well, the mortgage is the big one, but not everyone has a mortgage. So, I mean, one just really super easy one and is um, to do with energy bills. We're coming into winter and electricity prices are going up. Um, there's a government website, which I love telling people about, which is just energymadeeasy.gov.au. And that works for everyone except for people in Victoria who need to Google Victorian Energy Compare. But I love it when the government steps in and tries to make it easier for us to make financial complex financial decisions. And they've done it in a few areas. They've done it with electricity. All you need to do is pop in you know, where you live, a few usage details from your bill. It will show you a list of who's the cheapest provider. You just switch to the one on the top, which I've done. And, I, you know, you can be saving sort of 30, 50% off your bill. Um, another one is privatehealth.gov.au. So that's to help people with shopping around on private health insurance bills too. And so my book has like lots of little tiny hacks like, you know, you know, use bar soap, not liquid soap, because you'll probably go through less of it. And, you know, wash your clothes on cold cycles. So there's sort of fun little ones, but the, they're the, the really um, the big pieces that are going to make a difference and get you the substantial savings are around those things like shopping around on your mortgage, reviewing your interest rate and, and looking at comparison sites like CanStar, Compare the Market, Rate City, Finder, and you just find the best deals um, and swap around. And I know that's the hardest ask for people because who wants to spend their life, you know, comparing insurance policies? Um, but that's where the biggest savings are to be had. And if, if at least it's just um, popping on a comparison website, pulling out a figure and ringing your own supplier and saying, oh, hey, look, um, NRMA is offering that. What, what about that? And sometimes that is enough to get yourself a discount or, or just walking and trying smaller providers, smaller banks, smaller electricity providers. Um, there is a lot of money being made out of people's inertia and they know mm. we're scared of money. They know we don't really want to think about it. And so the best, you know, the prices are different for new customers versus old customers. So if you're someone who hasn't shopped your mortgage or your policies for a while, like there's some really easy gains to be had. Well, you know, large gains from making a few phone calls. So I, I get passionate about that sort of stuff because they're the big rocks. You know, they sort of say you'd fill the jar with the big rocks and the little ones um, add them in as you can. You know, gosh, please make sure as interest rates are going up that you know what your interest rate is and that it's one of the lower ones on the market because variable rates are going up. You want to start from the best position you can. Um, yeah, there's still like, I don't know um, the exact ones, but you can still get a mortgage with sort of a low, in the low twos you know, this will change because unfortunately interest rates are going up <laughs> each mm. month probably. Um, but yeah, the big, the big things. The sense of, um, yeah, you're right in terms of there is a lot of money made on our inertia um, just by we've already got something sorted, can't be bothered making that change. 
Um, subscriptions are the other ones that come to mind, the amount of ones that you go, oh, 12 months later, oh, yeah, we haven't used that. We should have cut that off. <laughs> yeah. And if you're maybe sort of a person who's not into the budgeting and stuff, you know, try and get a picture in your mind like everyone is out to get you. Okay, so this is probably not good psychological advice, <laughs> but everyone is out to get you. The motivation. Banks are, to, banks are out to get you. Your insurers are out to get you. Or they're just there to exploit you and make you pay more money and, and a little bit of um, wariness or fight fight the system, don't, you know, I, I love a bit of shopping around and sort of getting the best deal. Um, I make it a, a personal challenge. And then when you do your budget and you know, oh, I've saved that much, you could spend it on shoes or whatever you want or, or just the saving or investing as well. Um, it's really worth getting motivated on those things. And I think it's adding people to your community. Like if it's not your kind of drive but, you know, I'm whether it's your book or connecting with you or having that friend who loves doing that, what what did they find out and um, and kind of sharing that amongst your own kind of community is really powerful. One of the things that comes to mind when you talk about this is time. Um, so whether it's budgeting, whether it's looking for the wins and whether that's an annual review, is there, do you have a bit of a sense or do you kind of talk to about how much time um, and where should we kind of schedule and put, you know, actually dedicate the time to be able to focus on budgeting? What um, what are your suggestions? Yeah, um, my budgeting, I literally sit down for about 15 minutes on a weekend and record my transactions across to my paper worksheet. And then I spend about sort of half an hour to an hour reviewing my spending at the end of the month. So the budgeting itself, once you're sort of down pat with it, doesn't have to take that long um uh, perhaps there is though a learning curve and I do you know it is asking you to do something that you haven't done before but sort of what can you substitute that with so I've you know maybe I spend a a movie length uh, each month paying attention to my finances you know maybe view it like that it it is Mm -hmm. doesn't that sound worth it to to be in more in control of your finance you could probably give up a movie um I know it's harder for sort of you know, working parents and that kind of thing, but sort of scheduling some time and, and, and viewing the time that you spend, you know, don't view it as a hassle, but it's sort of a, uh, you know, you, you meditate, you journal, it's, it's an act of self-care almost to dedicate some time to grapple with these issues and, and look at your money, even though I know you're scared. <laughs> um, I wish we could sort of include that in the realm of self-care and things mm. to do to keep yourself a happy, healthy human being um, is having some visibility around your finances and, you know, making sure you're not overpaying for things, not trying to shift your mindset so that that's not like that's something I have to do, but it's something I want to do to help future me. And I have a section in the book where I write a letter to future me and I've... <laughs> I use like one of those Facetune apps to like create a picture of me when I'm 70, you know, and just to visualize, you know, we're so scared of getting old and dying and all that. I mean, we are all going to get old and we want to make decisions that are not only good for us now, but good for that future version of you. Um, So that's possibly the most woo-woo I get in the book is sort of (laughs) this idea of cultivating a relationship to your future self and just knowing you're going to be her or him one day and, um, you know, you can make small steps now to put that future version of you who you should love and look forward to being in, in a better position. So when you're making your decisions today, it's not just about what looking after you now, but, you know, if you didn't spend that money and if you saved it, 
she can spend that in the future. So I have this weird relationship with my future self. <laughs> I love um, it. I'm, um, I'm all about that kind of woo-woo. <laughs> but that, that sense of um, – because I think, and again, it's a bit like the, the spending – if you're really conscious, if it's aligned with your values, then you enjoy it more. Um, you're really present to it, whether it's a jacket or a pair of shoes, you kind of have a level of strut about putting it on. And what comes to mind as you were talking about that kind of future self at 70, when you've kind of pictured it, what it is you're doing with your money or the adventures you might be having or sharing it with family, that might be part of what's important to you at that stage. It comes with a, an extra level of joy and consciousness because of the work that you've put in, because of the vision that you've had around that. So um, it's that point I'm almost kind of sitting, you know, it's that thinking past you <laughs> for, yeah. for the work that you've done. Yeah, and you, and you get to not only experience the positive emotions of, of spending the money, but you're stripping your way from away some of the guilt and shame of, you know, when you go on a holiday and you're spending money and it's great, it's fun, it's a fun holiday, but you're like a little bit worried that you are going to have this massive bill at the end of the, it takes away from the joy. So one of my favorite things to do is I set myself an annual holidays budget, you know, a holidays future fund, and I set aside however hundred a couple hundred dollars a month that goes into that fund and then when I go to spend it ah oh gosh it's fun you know I just like wow this is money I have past me said future me gets to have and it's only future me plus six months or whatever yep. <laughs> but I'm looking you know I'm looked after and you know it does make that a more enjoyable thing so money with Jess is a really exciting thing to be putting out into the world what what would you love people to feel after they've read the book? I would love people to just feel a little bit more calm and a little bit more hopeful or optimistic that, you know, if you read it from go to woe, I take you through the whole process and that's what I'm trying to get you to. And such that even if people didn't follow my entire budgeting process, um, if they maybe just got rid of some of those uh, myths about money, about that, you know, it's scary, I shouldn't be spending it, I'm a terrible person, you know, I, I'll, I'll always be, death, um, you know, I'm not going to have enough in retirement. I think I've presented enough counter evidence and thoughts that hopefully that can really embed some new thoughts in people's mind. And I've had some lovely feedback already, you know, so if people are, I, I hope that it relieves suffering. Like <laughs> that is, this is sort of my purpose in writing the book because I see anguish in people when they think about money. And I firmly believe that a lot of it is unnecessary. Some of it's necessary because some people really are deprived and are struggling. But there's also another cohort of people who are suffering unnecessarily. <laughs> and so I hope to relieve some of that using my expertise, you know, the 20 years of having watched this stuff, being quite an expert, but also being in touch with this sort of more woo-woo self, <laughs> self-love, self-care to come back and just tell you, it's not, it's not that complicated. It requires a bit of work and self-observation, but there's sort of, there's not a sort of incredibly complex answer that you could never grasp to this. You've got to spend less than you earn and save some of it for future you. And that will depend on your income earning capacity and what other demands you have on your time. But you know, that's all, that's all there really is to finance <laughs> um, and, and to find relief in that. To 
yeah, to what is necessary and what is suffering that that could be relieved, that connection to this being maybe one of the best self-care things that you could do in the same way that journaling is mostly accessible to a lot to people budgeting is also accessible and I love that invitation um, and I'm really excited to you know be sharing even in even this conversation with with my audience and to be sharing I think more and more conversations about money um, and value it's really really necessary Jess I want to end with one final question the name of this podcast is called standout life when you hear that term what does it mean to you to live a standout life actually touches on something that I is in within myself that I wonder about trying to achieve too much and trying to that tension between you know trying to stand out or just go with the flow so I assume that the message is to sort of to stand out and and to be bold and to to make better choices but also um not to be too hard on yourself I mean what what does it mean to you the standout life I'm interested to know yeah, it's a beautiful question. I love kind of asking people without any context around kind of what that means to them. For me, it's not about fame or notoriety or kind of this kind of big, um, uh, you know, kind of grandiose element when we think about standing out. It's more about am I clear on what matters to me and am I heading in the right direction, um, which is that kind of sense of purpose and a sense of progress, which you know, when it's money or budgets or values or family or those kind of areas, that that for me is kind of the definition around standout. But I'm always interested in, um, yeah, how other people interpret it. I love that. I can see that as sort of, you know, standing out from maybe the unconscious sort of path that society has got for you and that, you know, we are not sort of a conscious participant and standing up and saying, oh, no, this is the life I want. Um, and, yeah, and striving to do better for your for yourself, not in a strivey way, but um, just to to be happier. I'm on board with that. I think <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess. I've loved this conversation. I've got a couple of websites, Energy Made Easy uh, and Private Health, that I'm going to go and explore myself. Um, and really excited for the conversation that you're inviting about money. And people can join me over on Insta at Money with Jess on Instagram. I'm I'm sharing my spending trackers. I share my budgets and just try to live as an example that it's something that that can be done um, if you want to give it a go. Money with Jess over on Instagram. So please follow along. Um, great downloadables, as you've heard, really practical and an invitation to kind of start to step into these conversations. Thanks so much, Jess. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.